Last time we spoke about the secretive discussions amongst the top-ranking Japanese military leaders that led to the creation of Operation KE. Both the IGA and the IGN were grasping at straws trying to figure out a way to save face and get their boys off Guadalcanal. The Guadalcanal campaign had to be abandoned, and now the IGA and the IGN would have to share responsibility of holding a new defensive line in the northern and middle Solomons, while redirecting efforts at the New Guinea campaign. We also continued our story about the Bunagona Front. Buna had finally fallen after bitter blood, sweat, and tears were shed in its defense. The Bunagona Front was collapsing as the Japanese were scrambling to hold on to their last remaining toehold that was supposed to be the Port Moresby campaign. Now, they would have to defend the Sanananda Front, their very last hope. This episode is the Sanananda Campaign and the Tai Yunnan War. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube where I am currently unrolling a seven-part series on China's warlord era and another series on many unknown aspects of the attack on Pearl Harbor. And a reminder, if there's any subjects that you specifically want me to tackle, but maybe it can't be done here, I am creating a Patreon account to tackle exclusive subjects for this podcast series, the Fall and Rise of China podcast series, and for my personal channel. And to be frank, I'll probably tackle just about any historic subject you want me to tackle. I will also be doing some live streams, some Q&A, some hangouts, maybe some watch parties. Maybe I'll uh, even live stream some gaming on Twitch. It really is up to you, the audience. So if you're willing to pay a little bit extra, and it won't be much, to uh, do some fun stuff, just let me know. You can find me at the Kings and Generals Discord, or you can just message a comment on any of my YouTube videos. I always see them. Now, to give you a bit of a refresher, I know I certainly need it. Let's just summarize where we are on the San Ananda front. Units of the backed force led by Captain John D. Shirley had managed to worm their way around the Japanese positions and on November the 30th, they established a toehold on the San Ananda track, smack dab in the middle of the Japanese sectors. They had a very fragile supply line and they were under constant counterattack efforts. Their toehold was in a fairly open space with some swampy jungle surrounding them. Those said jungles held trees, and where there were trees in New Guinea, there were also Japanese snipers. Major Burnt-Bakt took up a position west of this toehold, keeping his men ready to mount a rear attack if the Japanese managed to take that said toehold. The issue he faced was if he committed all of his men to defend the toehold, which we will call a roadblock, well, he could risk losing any chance of a supply line. 
Captain Meredith Huggins managed to get supplies up the line to the roadblock, but the Japanese performed numerous counterattacks, reducing the roadblock's perimeter and killing its commander, Shirley. Thus Huggins took command of the roadblock, and it would bear his name. The Japanese never let up attacking the roadblock, but despite their best efforts, they could not dislodge it, while more and more American troops cut their way through to it. One Japanese private named Yokoyama was attached to a unit tasked with hunting and destroying enemy infiltrators, such as those at Huggins Roadblock. He went out on patrol with nine other men from a light machine gun squad. They were making their way through some jungle when they heard a noise and the machine gunner right in front of Yokoyama was shot dead. Two of his colleagues afterwards as they scrambled trying to grab his machine gun. Yokoyama wrote this in his diary about the scramble. What I remember next is the sergeant screaming, I'm moving forward, and running on to fight, but he got shot in the arm and ran back to where I was. I immediately gave him first aid. I told him not to move, but he didn't listen. I guess you will be afraid of bullets once you have been shot, no matter how brave or how strong you are. While trying to move back, he was shot dead. By then, all the front line had been killed, and a voice from behind me said, Yokoyama, tell us what the heck is going on there. In shock, I screamed, the squad leader got killed. His raised voice drew gunfire, so he stayed where he was in silence. Soon after, I heard someone behind say, I think now Yokoyama is dead too. I can't hear his voice anymore. Let's get out of here. It's getting dark. We'll come back for the bodies tomorrow. After this point, Yokoyama lay still on the ground, trying not to make a sound, and a few moments later he saw several Australian soldiers begin digging foxholes just near him. He just laid there in some tall grass, watching them, waiting for an opportunity to escape. When darkness came, he grabbed a machine gun and a rifle and he ran for his life, managing to catch up with his squad, and he returned to their bunker. By December the 7th, the Australians formed a horseshoe formation around the front of the Japanese fortifications at the track junction. A fresh, albeit quite green Australian unit was brought up, since after the victory of Oivi Gorari, this unit was no longer required for garrison duty. They were supposed to be sent to the wharves of Port Moresby for labor duty, but unfortunately for them, they were sent straight into battle, with little to no training. They were pretty much a militia force, and they were sent to attack the Japanese positions without detailed briefing nor preliminary reconnaissance, a recipe for failure. On top of all of that, their signal cable was too short to reach the Japanese front lines, thus they had to rely on runners to send messages back to HQ. The concealed Japanese defenders laid infelding machine gun fire upon them as they approached. Within just a few hours, 229 of these brave militiamen were killed or wounded. It was a catastrophe. A second militia battalion had also been brought up, and likewise this led to another disaster costing 130 Australian casualties. The setbacks prompted the Australian commanders to keep their men back and just perform probing patrols for over 12 days. Now, after several failed attempts to get supplies up to the Huggins roadblock by December the 8th, a wounded Huggins was evacuated to the rear. 
Huggins gave a report to his superiors about the plight of his men. He told them they were living in foxholes full of mud in a 200 meter square area. They were suffering from high fever. Their feet were rotting off. Provisions and ammunition were low, and they could not dispose of waste nor bury the dead. The men were drinking chlorinated water from a hole dug just a meter deep. The Japanese, they were constantly cutting their communication wires, and sometimes they even tapped those lines. By the 13th, they had lost radio and telephone communication with the roadblock, and no runners were able to get through. The situation was bad for Huggins' men, but it was even worse for the Japanese they had cut off with the roadblock. Commander Tsukamoto's men had been stuck in their position since the 21st of November without resupply nor reinforcements. They were short on everything imaginable, dependent on just a small trickle of supplies that came down rarely from the Killerton track. Malaria was rapid, diarrhea and starvation were taking a toll. Private Yokoyama recalled this. We were all skin and bone as if our stomachs were stuck to the inside wall of our backs. Our pelvic bones stuck out too. We all suffered non-stop diarrhea. We would dig holes to put our buttocks and pelvis over and lay down on them one sleeping at night. Any overnight excretion would drip into the hole. These are the kinds of passages you hardly ever hear about when it comes to war. The very unromantic and very real and gruesome aspects of war. The Japanese took to scavenging, particularly the Takasago volunteers, who were quite resourceful at sneaking into allied encampments to steal food or ammunition. The Formosans would slip into the enemy tents while they were out on patrol. Meanwhile, Tsukamoto's men fought off repeated infantry attacks and patrols. Over at Girawa, the situation was dramatically different. There was large-scale flooding, sending water and sewage everywhere. Equipment got wet and deteriorated. Food and medicine were running short. At the hospital, malaria was running rapid, but there was not so much medicine to go around, so most of the medical personnel had become patients themselves. A Australian cavalry unit fought its way to Huggins' roadblock by the 18th, and they smashed the Marassi unit occupying another point along the San Ananda track, just 400 meters north of Huggins' roadblock. This was called the Kano roadblock, and the Marassi unit had the unfortunate job of occupying it. Key posts were taken, but concealed bunkers held back most of the Australian militiamen units from advancing too much. On the 22nd, more Australian reinforcements arrived from Gona, which had already fallen. They relieved the weathered Americans at Huggins Roadblock. Now they faced the central sector commanded by General Oda. Tsukamoto's men defending the outer line in the south were fighting ferociously. As military historian Samuel Milner put it, Most of the Japanese at Gona had been service and construction troops with little combat experience. Those defending the San Ananda track junction were battle-tested infantry troops, probably as good as the Japanese army had. The Allies threw wave after wave, and they achieved the same results on the 20th and the 21st. By late December, the Americans had been reduced considerably by battle casualties and disease. 
to the point they could only maintain defense and patrols. Generals Herring and Vesey held a meeting and decided it was best to wait for tanks and fresh troops before mounting another major offensive. And that would have to wait until the 29th, as those units were still tied up at Buna. One private, Nishimura, was in a bunker at the southern end of the Giruwa Sanananda defenses. It was very close to an American position. He and his comrades had been starving for days, when a rather bizarre incident occurred on Christmas Eve. Nishimura recounted this. I remember it was Christmas Eve, and the American soldiers were cooking something. Some nice smell was wafting towards us, making us even hungrier. After we had been tortured for some time by the sweet aroma, probably something special for Christmas like canned turkey, one of the Japanese, a man who spoke quite good English, stood up saying, I've had enough. He goes on to say that that said man, stripped down to his underwear, staggered towards the American position, pretending to be drunk, while his comrades were in utter silence, probably very scared, listening in, waiting to hear a gunshot. But instead, they heard a bunch of laughter. A few hours later, the man returned with an armful of food. His comrades asked him what the hell had happened, and he told them this. We were having a good time eating and drinking. Whether we were enemies or not, I got something for you guys too. So share this around. I find this passage is quite interesting. It's very reminiscent of the Christmas on the Western Front during World War I that first year. Even amongst these bitter enemies at this point in the war, there was still compassion and humanity left. And a miracle like that could happen on Christmas Eve. Now, after the fall of Buna, the Allied command prepared for a major drive down the San Ananda track. Fresh American troops began to relieve the two roadblocks halfway down the track. Two 25-pounder cannons were brought up from Buna to Sapuda alongside four tanks by January the 5th. The commanders had learned from their mistakes at Buna. They were not going to repeat the error of tossing large quantities of men at Japanese defenses. Instead, they began to use heavy artillery fire, followed by smaller infiltration units. General Vesey devised a multi-pronged assault using multiple patrols performing a series of probes to keep the Japanese on constant alert, looking for their weak points. Every day, the Japanese endured artillery bombardment, hunkering down in their foxholes and bunkers. The Japanese defenders only gave up ground after inflicting heavy casualties upon their enemy but their physical conditions were deteriorating dramatically. They were starving. They were ill. Casualties were mounting. Through December and January, the provision deliveries became more and more sparse. Worse was for those the furthest down the San Ananda track. Private Miyashida noted that at the beginning, they were allocated a mess tin of rice to last them five days. Then it became half a mess tin, for seven days. By January, there was no mess tin. Men would try to eat plant shoots. On New Year's Day, the men got a treat. A handful of rice, a sardine, and a small amount of powdered miso. Seven men would share a kinsi, 
that's a cigarette, and a can of sardines. Some men got lucky and they shot birds down to make soup, or they found wild bananas. Then, of course, there were the scavengers who stole from the Allies what they could, such as the Formosans. Miyashita wrote this in his last diary entry on January the 10th. We ate some meat captured from the enemy. The enemy has penetrated our position. But the worst was saved for those furthest inland along the San Ananda track. At least those closer to the coast could scavenge crabs and other oceanic items, but those further inland, they did not have this as an option. As things became more and more dire, cannibalism wreaked its ugly head. The corpses of men killed near Japanese positions would sit out in the sweltering sun, causing a massive stench. Often, the Japanese would crawl out of their foxholes, cut open the dead, taking out their innards before burying them. Within the desperation of hunger, one of my sources had this to say. To someone on the edge of starvation, slicing off a piece of raw liver might be tempting. It could be surprisingly tasty, and the soft meat was easy to chew and swallow. Once the hump of a social taboo had been crossed, eating human flesh ceased to be morally problematic for those starving men. No one who was at Giroa could have survived that siege without eating human flesh, claimed Private Nishimura. And that was the truth of it. Nobody wanted to do it, but it was their last resort. It was eat or die. Cannibalism was much more prevalent with the men inland where the lack of supplies was the most prevalent. And these happened to be the positions first overrun by the Allies who came to find traces of said cannibalism. One Lieutenant Richi Inagaki, a paymaster for the 15th Pioneers, which was a construction unit, was captured later at Giroa, and he was interrogated about the prevalence of cannibalism. He said to his captors that he had heard rumors of it occurring, but he had not witnessed it himself. He told them he only ever resorted to eating horse meat from the abandoned pack horses, which made sense since he was stationed near the coast where provisions were not as bad. But he defended the acts of cannibalism, stating the men were suffering from malaria, high fever, there was no food, they all had vitamin B deficiency, how could they not succumb to such a thing? On January the 8th, the Allies resumed their offensive. Two defensive positions held by the Murase force were hit by 15 minutes of delayed fuse shelling, followed by infantry assaults from the east and the west. The results were not great, but two days later, American forces found a weak spot on the eastern part of the perimeter and they began to occupy it. They notably found evidence of cannibalism in the Giroa area. By January, many Japanese were criticizing and disobeying their superiors, though no full-on mutinies were manifested. No matter what, the men remained steadfast in their loyalty to the emperor, giving the Allies the appearance they were unflinching. Thus, the Allied command could not recognize the true state of their adversary. General Vesey ordered a four-stage attack on the San Ananda-Giroa area defenses. 
On the 9th, American forces advanced across the Killerton Track to prevent any Japanese from escaping down the path as they launched a flanking attack on the Sandinanda Front from the west. On the 12th, the main thrust began. Tsukamoto's men were hit by three Stuart tanks. But Tsukamoto had mined the path and saved a few anti-tank shells for such an emergency. The Kawamoto force, a regimental artillery company, was ready, and they hit the leading tank with a shell. The next tank was attacked by a suicide squad called the Niku Kohan, who jumped on the tanks, opening their turrets to drop grenades and Molotov cocktails within them. The Niku Kohan were killed by their own explosive work, and this inspired one private Shimada to write a poem. These brave men... Thoroughbreds all soaked the ground with their blood and fell to earth like a cherry blossom. Even after losing their tanks, the Allies did not let up and they began to surround the Japanese positions, making sure to cut off their supply lines completely. If they could not blast the Japanese out, they would starve them out. Yet unbeknownst to the Allied commanders, Colonel Tsukamoto had already ordered his men to evacuate the Southwest Sector. The Southwest Sector had lost communication with General Oda and the rest of the South Sea's force since the 9th. By this point, his force was reduced to 240 men, including the sick and wounded. They were starving. Hell, men were eating other men. They had to evacuate, and they did so at 8 p.m. They broke through two lines of Allied forces around the cover of darkness. For many who could not move nor be carried, they were silently given hand grenades or helped to commit suicide. Some of the non-movables were told lies, that forces were leaving to find food, and that they had to guard the area in the meantime. As Private Nishimura put it, They said, leave it to us, we will resist the enemy, as their comrades departed. There is no doubt in my mind, they knew exactly what was happening, but no one was prepared to articulate it. Miraculously, 120 men reached an assembly area at Borumbari near the mouth of the Kamusi River. Their engineers of the 15th Independent Regiment provided small boats to get the men over to Ley. They did not know it then, but it would take them over three months to make that journey. Now we have to actually move over to the CBI theater to talk a bit about the only nation that officially was allied to the Empire of Japan, the Kingdom of Thailand. Going all the way back to the start of the Pacific War, Thailand was in a pretty awkward situation. Thailand, prior to the outbreak of the war, was trying to get the best deal it could out of a foreseen cataclysm that was going to come. They pleaded with the West for security measures, but Britain did not have the military means to do anything in Southeast Asia, as they were literally fighting for their lives at home. The German surface raider Atlantis seized the British cargo steamer SS Automedin on November the 11th of 1940, and aboard they found documents. Those documents were intended to reach the British Far East Command, and they were given to Rear Admiral Paul Wenecker the German naval attaché at the German embassy in Tokyo. The documents disclosed that the British fleet could not help Singapore if it was attacked, 
and if Thailand was invaded, Britain would not declare war on Japan. Basically, the documents showcased how helpless Britain's holdings in Asia truly were. The documents even disclosed that Hong Kong was expendable. By the way, quite a while back, I did an interview with Brad Saint-Croix about the Battle of Hong Kong. He went through all the letters back and forth regarding Hong Kong, and it's actually quite an interesting and complicated story. So if you want to hear about it, please go back. I believe it was special episode 18 on this podcast. Needless to say, the documents were a legendary gift to the Japanese, who took them into deep consideration when devising their war plans. Now, Thailand, like I said, was in a sticky situation. They were hesitant to toss their lot with either the Allies or the Japanese, and they took up a stance of neutrality publicly. But secretly, they were still trying to cut a deal with either side, to the very end. The dictator of Thailand, Fibun Songkram, and I do apologize if I mispronounce that, I will call him by Fibun, was trying to desperately secure a guarantee from the British and Americans to aid Thailand if Japan invaded her. But neither country offered significant support. As it looked much more like the Japanese would invade, Fibun tried appealing to the Japanese, taking a stance of neutrality towards the incoming war. But while being on friendly relations, so to say, with the Japanese. It's basically like Thailand trying to sit on a fence. Now, in order to perform their Malayan and Burma campaigns, Japan required access to Thailand's ports, railways, airfields, and, you know, quite frankly, they needed to literally just march through the nation's borders. Japan simply wanted to walk through Thailand, so to say, and they did not want to have any conflict with her military. Because while it was a small military, you do have to remember, Thailand actually had modernized its military. If it's actually interesting to you to learn about how that process had occurred, I do happen to have one episode that talks about it very lightly. If you go over to my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, I have an episode called World War I for Southeast Asia. The episode is more or less basically on uh, those in French Indochina and how they fought during World War I. It also includes what happened with Thailand, because they did send military forces. And I'll just say it here, one of the most interesting things that I found when I had to make that episode, because I was not so knowledgeable about Thailand, mind you, was their advancements in aircraft. They were one of the first nations in Asia to create an air force, and it did perform in World War I. So anyways, if you're interested, you can go check that out. Japanese envoys had secretly talked to Fibun about free passage through Thailand, and he responded positively, but he never gave them a solid answer. On December the 1st, Prime Minister Hideki Tojo stated in a meeting he was uncertain where Thailand stood on the free passage issue, but he still hoped they could avoid hostilities with Thailand. Negotiations were made on December the 2nd, and Fibun was prepared to turn a blind eye if Thailand invaded the Kra Peninsula. But he wanted the Japanese to avoid going through the Bangkok Plain. By December the 3rd, Fibun agreed to allow Japanese passage through Thailand, provided the Japanese allowed Thailand to regain territories they were forced to cede to the British. During the Anglo-Siamese Treaty of 1909, and some of the Shan states in Burma, on December the 7th at 11 p.m., the Japanese presented Thailand with an ultimatum 
to allow their military to enter Thai borders, and they were given two hours to respond to it. It's all a bit confusing, and to brutally summarize, the entire time leading to the invasion. Fibun was still talking to both the Allies and Japan, trying to secure the best deal, and both Japan and the Allies knew he was doing this? Thus, Thailand failed to respond in time to the ultimatum. Personally, in my belief, Fibun wanted to save face by putting up a mock fight to give the Allies the impression he had wanted to join them while simultaneously he sought to win territory by allying himself with Japan. I mean, I don't blame the guy. From Thailand's perspective, and remember the time period this is going down in, it looked like Germany was steamrolling the USSR, and Japan was most definitely going to have a free hand in Asia for a while. When Pearl Harbor occurred, Fibun held a cabinet meeting and they came up with four options. Number one, Japan and Thailand would sign an offensive defensive alliance. Number two, Thailand would join the Pact of Steel alongside Germany, Italy, and Japan. Number three, Thailand would cooperate with the Japanese military campaigns. Or number four, Thailand and Japan would sign a mutual defense treaty. Fibun signed an agreement with Japan on December the 21st, which was an official alliance treaty. Then, on January the 25th of 1942, Thailand officially declared war on Britain and the United States. The Thai Payap army aided Japan by invading parts of the Shan states and the Karani states of Burma, annexing them as Sahrat Thai Daum. The Thais in Fibum were intoxicated with the Japanese victories of early 1942. And this led the Thai government to become more and more pro-Japanese. And a major result of this was dramatic anti-Chinese policies. Fibun's government began prohibiting Chinese from certain fields of work, such as artistry, driving, and barbershops. Chinese businesses, schools, and newspapers were closed. Then, special taxes were placed on those Chinese businesses, still open. The local Chinese community were subjected to raids and assaults by nationalist groups, and gradually the Chinese were segregated to ghettos. Some of these ghettos were found in Chiang Ma, Lamphun, Lampang, Chang'e, Phre, and Uttaradit. Now, the anti-Chinese stuff was not at all new to Thailand. Actually, before the war, on June the 23rd of 1939, Fimbun had changed the country's name from Siam to Thailand, meaning land of the free. This was largely directed against ethnic diversity within Thailand, which held Malay, Le, Shan, and Chinese. It was Fibun's attempt at a pan-Thai nationalism movement. Before the Pacific War hit off in Southeast Asia, Thailand did have a lot of anti-Chinese policies going on, and there was a lot of racism. But once they allied themselves to Japan, things certainly got much and much worse on that front. During the Burma campaign, the Thai Payap army engaged the retreating Chinese forces, and by the end of 1942, Fibun was preparing for an invasion of Yunnan province. His rationale for such a venture was because a small Thai minority populated its southwestern border. Man, do we hear that excuse a lot. You know, it's the old Sudetenlands. Or Luhansk and Donetsk, if you want to go further in time. Anyways, the Thai Payap army was 30,000 strong and it concentrated in the Shan states by the end of December of 1942. 
Their commander, Lieutenant General Chaurun Ratanankun Sirirongrit, devised plans to cross the Namloi River to attack two Chinese garrisons at Monghai and Mongyang. By January the 7th of 1943, the Taipeiap army began their offensive, smashing the two garrisons with heavy artillery and aerial bombing. The Chinese defenders fought them bitterly for three days before being forced to pull out by January the 11th. The Thai Air Force particularly devastated the Chinese, and they were bolstered by some Japanese Ki-27s and Ki-30s that had been purchased recently. On January the 12th, the Thai Air Force hit Changbing Base, killing many, and thus the Thais enjoyed air supremacy over the area. The Taipeiap Army overran numerous garrisons at Mongpan, Mongma, Mongle, Chengkang, and Luang before crossing the Nanlan River on January the 13th to assault Qianlong. They would be finally halted at Qianlong after running rampant for 10 days. The Thai threw wave after wave at the Chinese fortified positions, losing countless lives. But they could not overcome the Chinese machine gun nests set up over the adjacent hills. The Thai Air Force were brought in to bear down upon them, devastating the fortifications and allowing the Thai Paiap army to storm Qianlong, taking its fort by January the 28th. Facing no real opposition, the Taipeiap army consolidated its control over the small southwestern pocket of Yunnan province that held the Thai minority population and began to build up defenses. Fibun then declared a Great Thai Kingdom policy, and by taking so much territory, this certainly bolstered the policy. Though in the end, it would be a paper tiger. In truth, Thailand would suffer terrible natural disasters such as the Bangkok floods of 1942 and its economy was in shambles, unable to cope with the conditions of a world war. The excursion into Yunnan province was to be the last real offensive taken by Thailand for the rest of the war. She would defend her new territories by building up fortifications. What is interesting though, in January of 1943, after performing such a large-scale military expedition, two of Thailand's Paiap Army's divisional commanders began to secretly arrange a returning of Chinese POWs process. It was a gesture of friendship and an opening of secret negotiations with Chiang Kai-shek's government in Chongqing. Fibun and the Thai military leadership were no idiots. They saw by late 1942 the Japanese had lost the initiative in the war. And, as what seems to be kind of typical of them, they were hedging their bets. Fibun gradually distanced himself from the government of Japan. Sometimes sitting on the fence works out. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube where I'm releasing a seven-part series on China's warlord era and a series on lesser-known aspects of the attack on Pearl Harbor. And a reminder to you hardcore fans out there who want very specific subjects heard, I'm going to be creating a Patreon account and it will be there where I will tackle such things. And it doesn't even have to be limited to the Pacific War. 
This is something you want to see. Let me know by commenting any of my YouTube videos or you can catch me over at the Kings and Generals Discord server. Buna and Gona had fallen. All that was left was the Sananenda Front. The last toehold of Japan's failed Port Moresby operation. Fibun and the Thais were playing a dangerous game between two tigers. But would Thailand be able to survive the war in the end?